All right, this morning we are moving into Genesis chapter 48. If you'd open your Bibles or some electronic version thereof, we're looking just at verses 1 through 7 this morning. Genesis 48, 1 through 7, continuing on in this amazing story. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their father, name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there. On the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Oh Lord God, this is your word. We readily confess it. And it is truth. It is historically accurate. It teaches what you want us to know. And it, it is food for us, for our souls, that we might live according to your word, that we might be built up and heartened and encouraged and exhorted. Indeed, we ask for such this morning. And we ask for your Spirit, O God, for understanding, for illumination, for joy, for conviction, for sanctification, that we might be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I get to this point and I think, wow, this has been quite a uh, proper drama, I might say. It's been a tale of hatred and bitterness and lies and deception and injustice. The love and grief of a father we've seen who's lost his only, uh, her dearest son, rather. And then Joseph himself, who experienced, and some of you are old enough to know this phrase, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Some of you don't know where that comes from, but that's okay. And yet, even from that defeat, right, Joseph rose again to an even greater victory. The national crisis predicted, experienced, and yet solved. And then the family's reunion eventually through forgiveness and self-sacrifice. And all these events, all these details directed by none other than God Almighty, but God Himself, who planned everything for Israel's good. And so then the author says, after this, 
After all these events, after all this story, after all these things have happened, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill, meaning Jacob is dying. He's sick unto death. He's about to be gathered to his people. Now, he doesn't die yet. We find out there's actually two more chapters, chapters 48 and 49. He dies, at, his death is recorded at the end of chapter 49, but the time is close. And what he does, as revealed in these two chapters, shows that he has become a man of, of great faith in God's promise. You know, of course, or perhaps will recall that Jacob was a twin brother, and he was born clinging or grasping onto his brother's heel who was born first. He was born second. And he was named Jacob because he was a cheater. And he was a self-serving manipulator who created divisions in his own family through his favoritism, which went on and on and on. But now he's old. He's an old man, 147 years old, and he's facing death. He's basically on his sickbed, on his deathbed. And yet he's become a great man of God through struggle and through loss and through pain. And yet in all that, seeing and knowing and experiencing God's faithfulness. He is now clinging still, but he's clinging to God's promise. That's what you and I must do. I can still remember a conversation I had with my own father over 20 years ago when I, I spent many times, but one particular time I remember at his deathbed, basically, when he was dying of a brain tumor, and I shared with him John 17, 24, which is part of, of course, our Lord's high priestly prayer, when, when our Lord himself was about to be uh, about to depart and go away. And he said this in his prayer. It, it's so striking to me. Praying, of course, to his father. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, or you, who you have given me, may be with me. He's about to go away. And he's saying, Father, I want them with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. It's a wonderful thing that Jesus, the Son of God, the ascended King of kings, desires that we, his people, be with him. And I told my dad, sort of being called, as it were, to his deathbed like Joseph was, Dad, the only way to glory is through the doorway of death. And my dad died February 28th, 1998, clinging to God's promise of life. And so, though death is indeed an enemy, it is indeed an enemy, the believer should approach his or her death or the impending death of a loved one who knows the Lord with great hope and anticipation because so much more is gained than is lost. In fact, really, compared to what is gained, really nothing is lost. Paul said what? To die is gain. Christ wants you to be 
with him. Remember what, Paul, what uh, Jesus said to the now-believing thief on the cross, the converted thief on the cross next to him, said, today you will be with me in paradise. To be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. So notice that Jacob does not seem to be sorrowful or frightened. Even though he was sick unto death, he was very weak. He was struggling, perhaps in some pain. We don't know all the details, of course. But his body was old and his, and his body was failing, and yet he was actually hopeful. He was hopeful because he was, he was future-focused. He was promise-focused. His mind was fixed clearly on God's sure promise. And so we can, as believers, can fix our eyes and must fix our eyes on that promise in the same way when we are weak and sick and perhaps dying. We must be forward-looking, looking to the resurrection. Paul said, we know that if this, if, if this tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We know that whatever this life brings, whether wonderful things or sorrowful things, gains or losses, is just for a, a short time. And death, however frightening, sometimes it is frightening, whether you're experiencing it, going through that, or, or watching a loved one. Uh, Barbara and I have done it four times watching a parent go through an extended sickness and die. It's a difficult, painful thing. Some of you have done that recently. But for the believer, it's nothing less than the arrival at that great and wondrous city of God. I trust and hope that at least one time in your life you have read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And if you have not done so, get it soon. It's probably free somewhere or inexpensive and read it. One of the most encouraging parts of it to me is actually near the end when Christian, the pilgrim, comes to the, the river, which symbolizes the believer's death when the believer crosses from this world into the next world. And if you've read that wonderful allegory, you remember that when he arrives at the bank of the river, Across from the great city, he gets there and discovers, wait a minute, there's no bridge. There's no nice, easy way to cross over that great river. To get there, he must pass through the raging waters of this river, and he was very frightened. And yet, he had no choice, and so he entered, and he began to sink, and he cried out in fear, and he thought he might be lost. But he was not alone. His friend Hopeful was with him. And Hopeful began to encourage him with Scripture. And he told him he saw the great city, the great gate of the city. And there were men there to receive them. And with that, both men actually were strengthened and heartened. And they persevered. And indeed, they made their way to the bank on the other side. And there were two men in shining garments these ministering spirits there to receive them and welcome them into the city. 
to the heavenly Jerusalem and the paradise of God. And so here is Jacob, now a man of God, a believer with strong faith. He had only his thoughts to occupy his time. He had finished his, his race, so to speak. He had finished his tasks. He was forward-looking. He was finding hope. He had confidence in God's promise. And like Abraham, he was indeed looking for that city whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't depressed. He wasn't sullen. Though he was weak, he was sick. His heart was filled with hope. He was a man of great faith. He was a man even of joy. His faith was the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is who he was. And I believe that as he looked at that river, he was on the bank, as he faced that river, figuratively speaking, he had confidence. And I think it was for him shallow. Perhaps he thought in his mind like, like Hopeful did. I feel the bottom and it is good. See, if you fix your eyes on Christ's promise and by faith behold what Jacob beheld, you can endure whatever struggles come your way. Here's what Hopeful said. These troubles and distresses that try you or that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you. Whether you call to mind that which heretofore you have received of His goodness and live upon Him in your distresses. Will you live upon Him and trust in Him in your distresses, which are sure to come? Well, Joseph was told, Behold, your father was ill. And he came straight away. He came straight away and he brought with him, we're told, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who were born of his Egyptian wife. And when Jacob heard that his beloved son Joseph had arrived, he, he somehow summoned all of his strength, strength he probably hadn't known for days or weeks. And he sat up in bed to address his son. And I can imagine at this moment, he seemed at least uh, lucid. His mind was, was strong. He was powerful in speech. And he reminded of his son. He went back in his memory and went back to the most significant thing that happened in all of his days when he said, God Almighty appeared to him at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said, Behold, I will make you fruitful. This is um, repeating this covenant promise to Abraham and to Isaac. Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And that was on Jacob's way to his uncle Laban's house. But on the way back home, 20 years later, God appeared to him again to really bring two witnesses, right? To establish every truth, the Word of God says, by two or three witnesses. And so Jacob was sure that God would do what he has said. And he's reminding Joseph of what God's Word said, what God's promise was, and that God will certainly do what He says. Israel will become fruitful and numerous. 
Canaan will be given to his descendants as an everlasting possession. That was Jacob's hope in his dying moments. As he looked at that river, as he was beholding the city on the other side, and he reminded Joseph this. We must remind our own children and perhaps grandchildren that, you know, this world is just a temporary place. We're only here for but a few years, 70 or 80, 88, 90, maybe longer, a few years perhaps. But, you know, there is a greater destination for those who believe. There's a much more glorious city than the great cities of the world. A much greater destination. Don't love the world too much. The word to ourselves, the word we must share with our kids and grandkids. Don't love this world too much. You, be, you are a pilgrim, a sojourner, on your way to a much greater destination. Read Pilgrim's Progress. But Jacob is getting to something urgent, something that's been in his mind that he must make known. Verse 5, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Egypt, I'm sorry, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Of course, Reuben and Simeon were the first and second sons of Leah, and therefore they were Jacob's first sons, oldest sons. So Jacob is saying that the two sons of Joseph are going to be his children as much as Reuben and Simeon were. He's basically adopting them. And he's saying, even though they were born to you in a distant land, a foreign land, born of a foreign woman, of, a, of an Egyptian woman, they are nevertheless by, if you will, Jacob's decree of election, going to be his, and they will receive a share in the inheritance of which he just spoke. The promised land, that inheritance, that destination, that possession. And by choosing Joseph's first two sons, Jacob is giving the right of the firstborn to Joseph. Reuben, who was Jacob's firstborn son and heir originally, lost his birthright as the oldest son. And we actually have God's own word that this was so in 1 Chronicles 5.1. It says, But because he, Reuben, defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. And Joseph was the firstborn son, but of Rachel, who was... Joseph's or Jacob's other wife, of course, and really uh, the love of his life, as it were, his soulmate. And so you remember the story how Leah had six sons before Rachel even experienced one pregnancy. And so in, in the battle, remember there was sort of this, this battle between the sisters as to uh, you know, children born, and, and at one point the, the battle was all uh, Leah's, it was six to zero, <laughs> six sons to zero. But then we read in uh, Genesis 30, verse 22, then God remembered Rachel 
And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Joseph. That's covenant language there. God remembered. It's not like, you know, oh, I had forgotten all about that. You know, Shazam. Another showing my age in these times. No, it's covenant language. He listened to her. He opened her room. God was acting to, to fulfill his promise. And the language is actually kind of similar to language that was used with regard to Isaac and even the conception of Jacob and Esau, births which clearly involved the fulfillment of God's promise and his miraculous acting in history to fulfill that promise. Because Isaac and Jacob were both children of promise. Neither was the firstborn. Remember, Ishmael was born before Esau, and, uh, or before Isaac, rather, and Esau was born before Jacob. They were twins, but Esau was born first. But to show that it's the children of promise who are regarded as, as the true children of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau were rejected, and Isaac and Jacob were chosen. And so Reuben here is rejected, and Joseph is chosen by God's providence, by God's decree. But what's even perhaps more interesting is the fact that though the birthright here now belongs to Joseph, we've mentioned this before, the Christ is not going to come through the line of Joseph we would, as we would expect, right? The Redeemer is going to come through the line of Judah. 1 Chronicles 5.2 Judah became strong, or he prevailed among his brothers, and a chief came from him. We spoke some weeks ago, perhaps months ago now, I don't know, how Judah had become the de facto family leader by standing up and speaking out and acting on behalf of the family for the family's good. And so again, Reuben dishonored his father, by lying with Bilhah, but Judah honored his father by offering his own life in exchange for the life of Benjamin. And yet we know it's not by works that God's choice is made, but by a sovereign grace, because Judah, remember way, way back a long time ago in chapter 38, Judah sinned terribly himself by lying with his own daughter-in-law. Yeah, he didn't know it was she, but yet he sought out a prostitute. And so he sinned, breaking the same commandment, interestingly, that Reuben had broke, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. So salvation is not by works, it's by grace. So Paul wrote, it's not by human will, not by human exertion, it's by God who has mercy. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. God does what he does. But if there's anyone who does not believe, that's no excuse for you. Don't say, well, God has not yet had mercy on me. God has not yet chosen me. God has not done a good work in me. No, believe the gospel. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your wicked ways. It is your responsibility to repent today. Turn from your wicked ways. Embrace Christ and He will forgive. We read that text, that glorious text from the prophet. 
For he bore the wrath of God in his own body for you. For you. He will refuse no one who comes to him in faith and repentance. He himself said, whoever comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Broken and wounded, sick and sore, in all of your sin, in all of your lifestyle choices and depravity, he will not cast you out. He will receive you if you will come to him. And you will have an everlasting possession in a new earth, even as Joseph was given that possession through his two sons. There is no tribe of, there was no tribe of Joseph, but there was a tribe of Manasseh and a tribe of Ephraim. And all children of promise, given the gift of faith and repentance, will know God's grace and have that place in it. And it leads us back to where we started. The hope of the resurrection. The hope of eternal life. The hope of being in the presence of our God forever and ever and ever. Which is a certain hope because it's based upon God's sure word. And He cannot lie. He cannot be unfaithful. It is a true word. But the history, if you know your Old Testament, the history of Ephraim and Manasseh would turn out to be actually quite tragic. They were northern tribes. And both tribes were lost when Assyria conquered the northern territory in 721, 722 B.C. And we know that that was, in fact, God's judgment against those ten tribes of Israel for their unbelief, for their, for their false gods they worshipped, for embracing the ways of the nations, for not hearing His Word, not accepting the rebuke of the prophets, not believing His promises and His Word. They had so much at one point, but they lost it all. And suffered, if you will allow it again, the agony of defeat because of unbelief. There's an interesting story in Jeremiah, the 13th chapter. You know, I love reading the prophets. And it's interesting what God tells the prophets to do, Ezekiel, and in this case, Jeremiah. And he said to Jeremiah, go buy a loincloth. And then... Tie it around your waist and don't let it get wet. So Jeremiah did that. And then later on he said, take it off, remove it, and hide it in a cleft of a rock in the Euphrates. And so Jeremiah did that. Then later on God said, go back, retrieve it, go find it. And uh, Jeremiah found, of course, it was ruined. It was destroyed and the Lord said, I will ruin the pride, the arrogance of these people. But the Lord also said, for as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, think of a, a belt perhaps, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. The people of God chosen, the assembly 
the congregation of the Lord would not listen. Beloved, will you listen to God's Word? Will you be faithful? Will you be true to His Word above all else? Eschewing the ways of the nations, the cultural norms and societal ways around us that oppose God's Word? Jesus said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And notice the, as his figuratively speaking, as the struggles come, as challenges come, he says, as the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Trials and difficulties and pains and struggles and disappointments and losses will be sure to come. You've already known it, all of you, if you're older than about 10. And even death, the death of loved ones recently, some in this congregation, our own death, but God has given us a sure hope, right, by faith. And even now we can behold the city, that celestial city by faith. And so be strong and take courage. Be zealous for His kingdom. Seek first His kingdom. And be true to His word. And persevere in faith. And cling above all else. Cling to God's promise. Amen. Lord God, You are faithful and You are true. And we worship You. We thank you for your word. It is true. It is right. We cling to your promise. It is our hope. We thank you for the gospel, for all that you have done and all that you shall do. This life is a veil of tears, and yet there is glory set before us, and all who endure to the end shall be saved. Let us not be like Ephraim and Manasseh, who are ultimately faithless, and perished at the hands of the Assyrians. Lord, let us be those who hear the Word of God and obey it, whose house is built upon that rock which is Christ. And though whatever trials come, even death itself, yet shall we survive, yet shall we live. The gospel is the true rags-to-riches story because Christ has made it possible for us and we pray in His name. Amen.